So this evening, I would like to look at the Kalamata, well, not the Kalamata, it's not an olive, but the Kalamasutra. <laughs> and uh, some of you are familiar with uh, Stephen's book, Buddhism Without Belief, it's kind of a little part of it is mentioned, which actually is the most famous part of this sutta. But personally, what I find interesting is actually the whole sutta, which is quite a short text of two or three pages. And in a way, it's a sutta which generally is in, it's in four movements. So it's kind of looking, in a way, at four different ideas, which kind of also follow each other. And so that's what I like to look at uh, tonight, is a different movement of the Kalama Sutta. And because in a way, it's about knowledge, and experience. It's also about practice, also about the effect of the practice, and also slightly about karma and rebirth. So that's at the end it will come in. So to me, in, in a way, looking at the Kalama Sutta, it kind of, some of the things it says, I think is very relevant to our practice, to our life. And so the story, some of you might know the story is in a way the setting is that the Buddha is traveling to a village, the village of the Kalamas, and the Kalamas ask him this. And they say, we have all these teachers who pass by, all these mendicants, all these yogis, they pass by, they expound their doctrine, but they despise, they revile, and they put others' doctrine to pieces. And so the question is, which speaks the truth, which speaks falsehood, and basically who should we follow, what should we practice, who should we believe? And so basically we have these kalamas, and it's a bit like nowadays. In the West, you have all these different traditions, even within Buddhism, you have all these different teachers, and often they say, you know, ooh, you know, this tradition is a quickest, this tradition is the most comprehensive, this one there, they don't know anything or whatever it is. And then you might wonder, but what is the best? What should I do? And the Kalama do exactly the same. What, what should we believe? What should we practice? And so the Buddha says, it is Kalamas, it is proper to doubt. So basically say, this is already a good start that you don't just listen to these people and do what they say, but you question the value of what they say, the meaning of what they say. And then, instead of telling them, this is what you should do, because what I think is the best, that's not what he says. Now I am going to give you the criteria for belief and for trust, so that you, you, have, you kind of know what is what is it you should base yourself to practice, to believe something, to follow something? And so, and then he goes upon, do not go upon what has been acquired by. So basically he's saying, be careful. You might think that this is a criterion, but that is not so. So he goes through the whole list that is not going to be the ground of, your, of, of following anything. 
So it's basically saying, be careful of this, be careful of that. So here it goes. I think it's very interesting in terms of what do we do, even in our daily life. You know, we watch TV, and notice when you watch a program on TV, they tell you something, and very generally, you believe it. You think, hmm, yeah, that's the point. Next program says the opposite, and you think, hmm, yeah, that's the point. That's okay, you know. So here is what the Buddha suggests. Do not go upon what has been acquired by oral tradition or repeated hearsay. It's not just because somebody is repeating it that actually it's necessarily true. But what is interesting in terms of ourselves, when we talk to somebody, let's say we expound a theory to somebody, <laughs> we explain to them something, and they look at us like, hmm? They kind of don't look very be believing of what we say. What do we do? We actually repeat it, but a little louder. Because <laughs> we think that, you know, if we repeat it louder, they will get it. Generally, they don't. So in a way, to be to kind of that tendency we have, that if something is repeated, then there must be something to it. Next one. One should not go upon what has been acquired by a lineage of teaching. This is a big thing in certain tradition in Buddhism, that you must believe something because it comes all the way from the Buddha. There is all this unbroken lineage. This is one thing I can guarantee you that any lineage is broken, has huge hole in them. There is no lineage directly from the Buddha. But even if it was unbroken, it's not because it had always been taught so that it's a good idea. I read this wonderful story about a family tradition. There was a tradition in a certain family that when the whole family got together, they would get a roast. And then the women in the family, before they put the roast inside the oven, they would cut either hand, either end of the roast. And then one day somebody wondered, but why do we do this? What's the point? So, you know, the daughter, the granddaughter, go back to the mother. The mother said, my mother did it. Go back to the grandmother. My mother did it. The great-grandmother was already still alive. She said, my mother did it. And finally, the explanation was that long ago, they were very poor. And because of that, they had a very small oven. So in order for the rose to be able to be cooked, they had to cut it at either end so it could fit in the oven. And that was a tradition, nothing very useful. And then they changed it from that point on. But it's kind of like, you know, just because everybody does it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing to do. Next one, do not just go upon Rumor or hearsay. You know, if you, you, you hear rumor, you hear gossip, people say, oh, yes, you know, I've heard that one. And I read a very interesting one about rumor, rumors, that actually there is a science of rumor. You can do a PhD in, about rumor, about, you know, spreading rumors. You know, there is PhD in that. And I read a book about it. And it was very interesting. And he said the way rumors work is that generally you believe in it because it confirms what you think. 
So it's not that the rumor is saying something new, but because it confirms your bias anyway, you will believe it. So the Buddha is saying, be careful. Because it's a rumor, generally, you know, it doesn't mean that it's true, that it's useful. Then you should not just trust what is in the scriptures. And I mean, at the moment you have Stephen and also me who brings you a lot of quotes from the scripture. And I think it's very important to see that those quotes from the scripture are chosen. Yes, we could bring you some other quotes <laughs> who are very different. So that actually we choose this one, which of course kind of, you know, have a slight slant to which we agree and we think it's a better idea. And I remember when we used to have conferences uh, in the Sharpam College long ago with the various teachers, Buddhist teachers, and they came from different backgrounds, Zen, Theravada, Tibetan, etc. And then we would come to a disagreement. You know, we say, no, it's like this. And those were, no, it's like that. And then each of us would quote from a scripture to support our argument. You know, so in a way we have to see that generally, yes, there is lots of beautiful things in the scripture, but it's such a vast uh, amount of suttas that actually you cannot nearly make them say everything you want, but you can often find a good one which will in a way support what you prefer to believe or what you prefer to do. Next one is do not just go upon logical reasoning. You know, because it's logical, it must be true. And this is an experience I had in France uh, many years ago. Uh, I had some problem, a phys physical problem, and I had an operation, and it did not work, so I had a second operation, and the second operation made it that my leg was really bad. It was like not very painful, very kind of like something happened. A nerve was cut, I presume, and then it was very painful on that leg, very hot, fiery, etc. So I go back to the surgeon and I say to him, but you know, I have this, you know, this pain in the leg. It's really hot, it's really fiery. You know, it goes to the knee. And he said to me, but... Mrs. Bachelor, it is not logical. <laughs> so, because my pain was not logical, it sounded like it did not exist. I mean, maybe in his eyes, in my eyes, it really was there, you know, logic or not. So again, to be careful if we just base ourselves upon logic. Then the next one, upon reflecting on reason, upon reflecting on theory in a way. And this is to be careful, in a way, of all these words we hear. For example, about no self. And then, if you kind of, you know, say, okay, there is no self, or emptiness. I like this one. This is a good one. Emptiness. And then you think, everything is empty. And then you go and look out for this emptiness, that you might, one day you will find these voids, and everybody is going to kind of disappear in it. But if you look, I mean, you know, Buddhists would say to you, this table is empty. Fair enough. It's empty in a way. But what does it mean to say that it's empty? It doesn't mean that it does not exist. It doesn't mean that if I hit somebody with it, they're not going to feel it. You know, It might be empty, but it's still solid. And so in a way, the emptiness of the table 
is just that it does not exist apart from the parts that constitute it. So it doesn't mean that there is a mystical emptiness in the table. It's just that it comes upon parts. That's all that emptiness is. It's not kind of this huge big thing. So to be careful in a way about the words and how we use them. Then, another one, which is interesting. Do not base yourself upon just a bias toward a notion that has been pondered upon. So let's say you have an idea, and you think, hmm, that's a good idea. Then you think, hmm, yes, you know, that's a way to go. This is, this reflects reality. This is the way reality is. And this, a good example of that is child rearing. I read a book, an history of the last 150 years of child rearing, child advice for parents. And they change every 20 years. So every 20 years, you have the opposite. One 20 years, you have, you know, you must discipline, you must, you know, organize, schedule, that. Then after 20 years, it seemed not to work. The next one, you must be so soft and kind and gentle and sweet. Da, da, da. 20 years doesn't work. Then the, and, and she was showing how constantly it went back and forth. And each time, each time you had a man who said that they knew what was best. They had a bias. They pondered over the notion. And then they said, this is the way. All the mother must do this. And I thought it was fascinating. You know, to notice how, what is this, what, what we do, what is it based on? To really notice. Then, the next one is do not base just upon the seeming competence of a speaker. So, you know, you have Stephen, and he really speaks well, and he seems to know lots of things, but, I mean, you have to question, you know, should you believe everything he says? 150%. That's a question. I leave it to you. <laughs> then, the last one, we, do, we should not just based upon the consideration this monk is our teacher. And just because he is our teacher, he knows what's what, and I must know what he says to me. And again, it doesn't mean that the teacher does not have experience, does not know things. But we have to be careful to think the teacher knows everything. I remember when I was in Korea as a Buddhist nun, and I had to, to write a letter uh, with Master Kuzan. I used to help him with his uh, foreign correspondence. Uh, my teacher was a Korean Zen master. And one day he turns to me, we are kind of looking at something, he said to me, you know, you must pray to be reborn as a man so that you can really awaken. <laughs> and I looked at him. I mean, I am a convinced feminist. So being a nun did not change that. And I said, but do you know the Buddha said that men and women could awaken equally? And so he said, yes, the Buddha said that. But still, it would be a good idea to pray to be reborn as a man. So there we agreed to disagree, because I really did not agree with him, whatever. So he could be my teacher, he could say it, 
And I was not going to do it. So, and again, to see, you know, at what level should I trust what the person says? So that's the criteria. We should not base the practice upon. Then the Buddha gives the criteria if we should base what we follow, what we believe, what we practice upon. And he says, Kalama, know for yourself these things are unwholesome. If they're undertaken, observed, and practiced, they will lead to harm and suffering. So then you have to learn to abandon them. And then he asks them, you know, if you, were, if you cultivate greed, hatred, and delusion, is this going to lead to your welfare or to your suffering? And they said, well, it will lead to suffering. The three poison leads to suffering. And so he said, that's the thing to look at. If something leads to suffering, leads to more greed, to more hatred, to more delusion, then you abandon it. You don't practice it. So then he was really covering away for the Buddha. It was really the action and its result. That was his criterion to see, you know, you practice something, does it help you or not? And so then the second criteria was know for yourself that if you practice something, it is wholesome and that leads you to peace and happiness. That leads you to non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And in a way, it leads you to an ethical life. And so in a way, that's what the Buddha was looking at. He was saying to them, if you hear somebody saying to you to do something, first you have to consider, does it make sense? The next, second thing, if it looks like making sense, you have to try to do it and to try to see, does it help me to dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion or not? I had a, I met a man long ago uh, in France, and he was one of the early persons in France who started to learn to do meditation. And he had learned from books and things like this, so he used to do meditation. And he used to be an architect, and he had a little office. He had a big office, and then he had a little room where he would meditate. He built it specially. And he would say to the people in the office, I am going to meditate. And they would think, oh, no, not again. <laughs> because he would go to meditate, and he would come out, and he was so angry. Till finally, they pointed out to him that it did not seem to help. It did not seem to make him like a nicer person. And then he realized that what he was doing was actually sitting and just repressing all his emotions, all his thoughts. He was trying to, to become empty of everything by just suppressing everything. And so he would try so hard for an hour to do this that when he came out, he would just explode. And then he realized that's not a good idea. You know, the meditation is different. It's kind of about mindfulness, seeing things arising and passing away and not about repressing things. So in the same way the Buddha is saying, you know, is this helping me? To me, this is really the point of the meditation. We do the meditation, but when I go back to my daily life, outside of maybe the calm, the clarity I have here, does it help me to be more wise, to be more compassionate to myself, to others, so that it becomes an active thing and not just something I experience here? And then you have the third movement of the sutta. 
And so the Buddha said, you see, if you continue to practice, for example, if you practice meditation, then over time, you will be devoid of greed, hatred, you will be unconfused, you will be clearly comprehending and mindful. And then, this is in a way his point. So he said, you know, you see if it dissolves the greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's not just about dissolving the greed, hatred, and delusion. It's about what else will take its place. And for him, what else will take its place in our heart and mind, in our being, is that then we will dwell with a mind filled with loving kindness, filled with compassion, filled with altruistic joy, filled with equanimity. So in a way, it's not just about not doing something, but that by not being greedy, by not being hateful, by not being confused, then there is opportunity for this good quality to arise, for also us to cultivate them more, so they can also develop more. And that's not only to himself, it's really to others. Then I come to the last part, and this is the fourth movement. So now, because there is no greed, no hatred, no delusion anymore, because the mind is filled with loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity, then that person will live with a mind free from hatred, free from ill will, uncorrupted, and pure. And then that person can have four assurances in this very life. And that's where we come to karma. And so that's what the Buddha says here. So that you've cultivated, so now you are free from hatred, free from ill will, uncorrupted and pure. And then these are the four assurances. If there is another world, if good and bad acts bear fruit and yield result, then you will go to a good destination in paradise. However, the Buddha says, if there is no other world, if there is no cause and effect, here and now you live happily free from hatred. And to me, that's what I like about the Buddha. You know, personally, he thinks that, yes, there is karma, yes, there is cause and effect. But if there is no cause and effect, it's still a good idea to cultivate because you will be free from hatred. And so you will be more peaceful anyway. Then, next one. Suppose evil befalls the evildoer, then the one who do not intend evil will not be a f suffering because he doesn't do any evil deed. So if there is karma, if there is fruits of karma because you are pu pure and without hatred, you're not going to cause any evil, so then you are fine. However, suppose there is no, there is no cause and effect, then right here, right now, you're still purified in any case. So again, what I find interesting is that the Buddha is trying to show us, in a way, it doesn't matter so much 
this idea of karma, this idea of rebirth. The point is really that he's, not, he's really talking about in this life, right here, right now, because you are free from hatred, greed, and delusion, then you will be at peace. And then you will be wise and compassionate and will relate to yourself and to the world in that way. And this will have good consequences anyway. Or at least you will be at peace if there is no cause and effect. And this brings me to, in a way, the thorny question of karma. First, we have to see that there is actually two slightly different ideas. You have the idea of karma, and then next to it you have the idea of rebirth. I think this is a little different. Because the idea of karma, karma actually just means action, work. That's all it means. The fact that there is an action and there is a result to that action. Then upon that idea, you have the idea that then you have the karmic action and then you will have a retribution in future lives. That's, I think, a kind of a bigger story than just a story of cause and effect. But I think we have to be careful of this idea of karma because it has become very popular, that it be in the East or in the West. And through that kind of using it in a popular way, what I would call in an easy way, actually it has turned into what I call fatalism. And it became clear to me, and that's why I started to talk about karma when I did not before, when two things happened. First, one, one person came to me many years ago in an interview and, you know, and said, you know, I'm really concerned and I'm wondering if I, have, if I have a really bad karma and what I might have done in a past life because I really, really, really feel bad. I really, I'm such pain, I'm really so tired and really, really unwell. And so I asked a simple question. I said, has anything happened to you recently? And he said, oh yes, a month ago I fell from a cliff. So I said, I think it's more likely to be that than anything from a past life. So second one, I meet another person and she's really new to Buddhism. And she said to me, I like meditation, but you know this Buddhism and these Buddhists, I am not so sure about them. I don't think they are very compassionate. You know, because once I was so ill, and I went to see them and said, ah, too bad, that's your karma. Like, you know, that's your fault. So we have to be careful that karma can be used in a way that it becomes your fault to be ill or to be in this situation. You brought it upon you because in some past life you did what not. And in that way, in uh, many Asian countries, actually, uh, and that's what I uh, saw in Korea, actually, because of that fatalism, because of that idea of it's your fault from past life, then people who were disabled were not really considered very well. Because, you know, well, you're disabled, too bad, it's from your past life, it's your fault, you know. I mean, if you really kind of, you know, pray a lot, then maybe in next life you'll have a better rebirth, and off we go, but we can't do much for you right now. And then, of course, the people who were disabled were not very interested in Buddhism, you know. It did not sound like a kind of a fun thing to do, you know. It's your fault. And so I think we have to be careful of that. And so if we look in the text... Actually, 
the, the Buddha has a very different way to look at that idea of karma and rebirth. The, like in the Kalama, he gives us a two, the two ideas. It could be so, or it might not be so. He doesn't affirm one or the other. Then you have another passage from the Mahakama Vibhanga Sutta, where there he says what I would call is a traditional, regular view. He or she will experience the result of good or evil actions here and now, or in the next rebirth, or in a later existence. So here you really have the feeling that everything that I experience comes from karma, comes from past act in previous life. But then there is another, back to the quotes, don't trust the quotes. Then you have another sutta, the Sivaka Sutta, and in it, there is this man who said to the Buddha, everything I experience comes from past karma, from karmic fruit. And the Buddha said, no, 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 you overstretch yourself. Actually, there are eight reasons for you to experience something. And here are the eight reasons. Eight conditions. First, problem with your phlegm. This is ancient time. You know, so it's problem with the flame in the body, problem with bile in the body, problem with wind, problem with the three together. Then problem because of seasonal change, improper care, exertion, and finally number eight, ripening of former action. So I think to me this is interesting because then the Buddha seems to recognize that not everything we experience is because of past action. There might be some, but not all of them. So I think we have to be careful of that idea of like a kind of totalizing karma, which then really kind of be like, kind of like a certain fatalism. Then what can I do? Apart from praying to be reborn in what? way and giving lots of money to the monks or whatever to kind of uh... so I think in a way for ourselves what is interesting to me what is interesting in terms of cause and effect karma proper action it's interesting just to bring awareness to conditions and to see, to me, often what is interesting to look is, ah, if I had not done this, this would not have happened. Often, I mean, you cannot always co correlate in that way, but often you can. I remember, but this was when I was in, in Korea, one of the jobs we had is that the rice was harvested, then it was kept, and after nearly a year of the harvest, then it started to have bugs and various things in it. So then before you cooked it, you had to kind of, you know, because you cooked for hundreds of monks, then you have to put the rice in this big tub. And then you had to kind of wash it about three times. And each time, you had to throw the bad water. And you had to make sure that not to waste one grain of rice. This was really like very bad. One grain of rice, terrible, because it was given by the donors, and this came, you know, from a lot of work in the field, etc., etc. So you have to really be very careful with what was given to the temple. So I have this friend who was working in the kitchen, and I found him really kind of like, you know, the 
the precept master shouting at him. And so once it was finished, I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, the first time I was so careful, no grain of rind left. Second time, I was hyper careful. Very good. And then the third time, just when the preset master came, you know, just in view, a very pretty lady passed by. And then lots of rice went over. So there was kind of like, you know, when he was mindful, no rice went over. When he was not mindful, and we can see that in our life. That, you know, if we suddenly, if we're very kind of in a hurry, then we're not mindful. And then we might fall down the stairs or we might, all kind of thing might happen to us. So in a way, to me, that's what is interesting in terms of this idea of cause and effect. More to look, when I act, what is the result of that action? To kind of become, in a way, more aware, more interested. And at the same time, not to be frightened because we have to act. And we don't know necessarily what is going to be the result of our, our action. Because sometimes you can have the best of intention. And actually, the action won't be such a good idea. I remember when I was uh, in Korea, I was a young nun. And something I very quickly learned, that's the Korean culture, is that when you eat, generally you must eat and share with everybody. You cannot eat on your own. This is a very communal culture over there. Or it was. And so I was traveling. I was hungry. I had bought some nuts. And I wanted to eat them. But I felt I can't eat these nuts on my own. I have to share them with somebody so I can really feel good about eating them. So then I look around for kind of, you know, kind of my uh, likely victim of my compassion. (laughs) And I found this perfect person, which is a little boy, you know, about three years old. And I am a nun, and I say to the mother, oh, can I give these nuts to the little boy? She can't say no to me, I am a nun, you know, French (laughs) nun too. So, So she said, okay. And then I give it to him, and then it's a disaster. He has everywhere. We can't eat them properly. And then I realized, you know, action, possibly mistaken intention and bad result. And it kind of taught me to kind of look, what is the intention? What is the action? What is the result? So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? I see it as a very 
Yes, if you, as you say, if it very much come with the dependent origination, with the fact of seeing, you know, you know, this causes that, that causes, and so at that level, I think yes, it kind of uh, connect with, in a way, the idea of no self, of emptiness, which doesn't mean that there is nothing, but which means that, in a way, everything is conditioned by something else which then can make us reflect on our survival, on our life. If we look at our life, we realize our life depends mostly on factors outside of ourselves. The air I breathe, the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the, the house I live in, the medicine I take. And so in a way, it's to see. I think to me this is in a way, the, the thing of the, the condition. That's why I prefer, in a way, instead of causing so much about karma, because there is such a kind of a, a fatalist, fatalistic idea or punishing idea of karma, I prefer to talk about conditions. And this is maybe something I like to look at tomorrow. It's kind of conditions, to look at the condition that forms us, to also look at our inner condition. Our, our inner condition meet outer conditions. How we even as a child arise. How, you know, we, 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 what I, we have, I have a wonderful photo of my grandmother uh, being uh, 90 with a baby being born three days old and the, the two next to each other. And when I see this photo, I see grandmother was like the baby. The baby is going to become like grandmother, but they look so different. That's when you, you see again, this whole condition which are going to make the baby become like grandmother. And so it, to me that's, yes, I would say it's a very rich field because that's why for me I would say the meditation is an exploration of conditions. Yes? Um, greed and uh, hatred is a very self-explanatory. Can you say a bit more about delusion? Delusion, generally, the idea, I mean, you know, they are, you can translate it like ignorance, you can translate it as confusion, as delusion. Uh, personally, the way I would look at it, because, I mean, traditionally, it would be seen as ignorance about the three characteristics, that you think that things are permanent instead of impermanent, satisfactory instead of being unsatisfied, cannot give you lasting satisfaction, being fixed and solid instead of being conditional. Generally, that's the idea about the, it's the ignorance of these three things. And so in a way to dispel the ignorance is not that we must know, as in, you know, I learned by heart that everything is impermanent, everything is unsatisfactory, everything is non-self. But it's more that we try to experience it. We try to know it experientially. And that's why this idea of vipassana, of trying to notice the changing nature of experience, or to notice, in a way, partly, not again saying that everything is suffering, but in a way, like the, 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 the suffering aspect of existence. And to me, what is interesting about that is that when we feel suffering ourselves, illness, for example, physical illness, then you can realize two things that it's painful, and that it's isolating. Nobody can feel your illness for you. However, 
they want to be compassionate to you. They cannot have your headache. They cannot have your backache or anything. And so when you really experience that, in with that pain, that isolation, then you cannot but have compassion for others. And I think that's, again, what you see in the Kalama Sutta. The Buddha says, if there is no ignorance, then arise loving kindness, compassion. So it's very much to see it's connected. It's kind of experientially, kind of something shift, something change. No. Yes? Okay, emptiness. Ah, that's a big subject. But you see, first to see that it started in the, the Pali Sutta, what Stephen is talking about, as no self. But very important to see that the idea of no self started 2,500 years ago against the idea then of Atman, which was something very definite. And so in a, in a way, the Buddha was not saying there is no self at all whatsoever in any way. He was saying there is not a certain type of self that the other person over there is saying the, there is. So there is kind of a little kind of, a, kind, of a, kind of working there. And so what he was saying is there is no fixed self. But what you have is a functioning self, or what I would call a processual self. That, in a way, yourself is different from myself because your conditions are different from me. So the conditions that form yourself have also a certain type and my conditions are different. So this self, this processual self, is relatively constant. That's why I'm not going to be an elephant tomorrow. And at the same time, there can be sometimes dramatic shift to it. So from that idea... Then it moves on to a more kind of maybe could say bigger idea of emptiness. But the, then the thing was not just attributed to the person, but it was kind of attributed to everything. But then again, it was not saying, I mean, it, it kind of went to kind of quite great height, and I won't go into that where there was different idea of emptiness, and emptiness nearly become a thing in itself. But that's not the idea. So basically, when it comes down to things, when they say things, something are empty, like, let's say this chair. This chair, from a Buddhist point of view, would be empty. But what it would be empty of is a kind of inherent something in it, which would say chair. That there is no cube in the chair saying, this is a chair. But then the chair come upon the part that constitutes it. So you have the legs, you have the seat, and you have the back. You take the back off, you have a stool. You take the seat, well, you just have four legs. You can't do much with it. So it's just a chair comes upon the constituent of it. That's all it's saying. Nothing dramatic. But why is it saying this? This is what we have to see. Why? It is in a way to... It's kind of like a, a remedy a medicine toward a certain illness. And the illness is that we attribute quality. We're kind of nearly saying that in the chair, in the person, there is something which never changes, and then quality comes onto it. For example, with the chair. 
I'm really tired. I'm so tired. I've walked three hours. I'm so tired. Chair, I sit on the, oh, it's such a nice chair. Such a good chair. This is a really good chair. I'm going to recommend it to my friend because it's a good chair. You know, goodness is stuck to this chair. I am in a hurry. I'm rushing and I kind of put my feet on the leg of the chair and I fall. <gasps> this is a bad chair. This is a terrible chair. It's kind of, you know, inside the chair. I am going to destroy this chair. That's what you do when you kind of beat up your car or your computer. It's a bad computer. So, and we do the same with people. You know, they are bad. I mean, they can act in a bad way. But often that's what we do. It's like kind of we attribute something which is fixed, solid, which is not going to change. So it's a way to see that emptiness is actually a remedy to an illness. You know, with this illness of I, me, mine. This illness of, you know, I have to protect myself. And the emptiness is saying, no, back to what you were saying, we are totally related. We are totally relational, processual, and we uh, are kind of, nowadays it's called interdependent. And that's why back to the grain of rice. Why was the grain of rice so important? Because the grain of rice, a lot of energy had gone into it, back to ethics, back to the weed. That actually, when the monks and the nuns eat, they recite chant, and in the chanting they acknowledge that this grain of rice, because of this grain of rice, actually insects have been killed, peasants have worked hard, and so you get this grain of rice in order for your life to continue. So you really should use it, first not waste it, and secondly you really must practice hard. Otherwise it's a waste of a good grain of rice. So in a way, again, you can see things being connected. And then from that, this kind of what the monks and the nuns would have this inspiration when they re when they recite the text that you know they eat this food, but not just for fun. They eat this food for sustaining themselves to practice so they can really then benefit others. So you kind of all look back on each other. Yes. Uh, in Vedanta, they, they have this uh, idea of Atma, which lends ex existence to this illusory world. Um, but without this all-pervasive consciousness, um, I find it difficult to see the difference between that and nihilism. Because, well, by logic, if that doesn't exist, if A doesn't exist without B, which doesn't exist without C for infinity, then how can anything exist? Uh, this, you see, that's what the Buddha was saying. You see, the Buddha, and I can't go on to it because I have a little time now. The Buddha really proposed the middle way. The middle way between nihilism, saying there is nothing exists, and between eternalism, everything exists. And so it was really the middle way between asceticism and indulgence. And so I think the Buddha was very a, a pragmatist. For, for him, consciousness was not something kind of, you know, uh, I can't express it, Stephen is better at that point. 
you know, that it's kind of floating about and it's there forever after and things like this. But for him, consciousness was an emergent property of the being. But I think this would be a better question to ask Stephen because he can really kind of, he has really studied it. Me, I can just describe it in, you know, very short. That's the way I would look at it. I mean, of course, you can see things that way. I am not saying you cannot see things that way. And actually, in later Buddhism, that view came back in by the back door. But possibly Stephen will talk about this at some point, because that's one of his uh, main... No, no, this is more like with the Yogacharya, the only mind school, or with uh, the, in the Dzogchen, in the Nyingmapa school, you have the idea of uh, illuminating consciousness. So, in a way, the Buddha started out with a different idea, and then over time, the idea came back in. But uh, I'm fairly sure at some point Stephen is going to talk about this, and uh, will explain it in much better way than me. Sorry about that. Thank you. So now there is some walking meditation. <laughs>